Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better on this week's episodes. In the red corner, the movie that set the standard for the buddy genre as Paul Newman and Robert Redford go a running and a robin as the Old West comes to an end in 1969's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Paul Newman is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is Robert Redford. Catherine Ross is Etta Place. An incredible pair of rugged adventurers creating a living legend on two continents. But it's just one guy. They were outlaws, running out of time and out of space, and a changing world was closing in on them. From the American West to New York. While in the blue corner, our bickering buddy Bonanza continues as Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis find themselves on the run across the southern states with the law hot on their tail. From 1991, we're talking Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise are going fishing. How come Daryl let you go? Because I didn't ask him. <laughs> He's going to kill you! I left him a note. <laughs> Thelma and Louise are going to catch hell. I'll have a wild turkey straight up and a coke back, please. Thelma! Oh, what? Tell me something. Is this my vacation or isn't it? Flip a drink of margaritas by the sea, Mama Cita. So what connects these two films and which one does it better? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken. Hello, Clash Butters. I'm a grandmother and a female, and I've got my rights. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. And today we are joined on ClashPod by a very special guest. It's wonderful to have her in the studio. It's film critic, broadcaster and host of the feminist film podcast, Girls on Film. She can also be seen currently presenting the BBC News film review show. It's the brilliant Anna Smith! Oh, thank you for the warm welcome. It's lovely to be here. How are you, Anna? I'm splendid, thank you. Life is good. Life is good. Yeah? 
Yeah, you know, we're finally getting out and about with Girls on Film. We've been on stage at Latitude Festival, which mm-hmm. was very exciting. First time in several years with an audience. So, oh, cool. Yeah, and I actually made it to Cannes as well this year. <gasps> so getting out while being tested furiously, obviously. Let me uh, live vicariously through you for a moment. How was Cannes? It was good, actually. A little bit quieter, but it was still quite exciting to be seeing movies on the big screen mm. with lots of other people. And the weather was gorgeous because it was July, not May, like normally it rains. So actually, it was a really good Cannes in oh, lots amazing. of ways. Yeah. Amazing. Now, we mentioned, obviously, you and I have worked together on the Oscars panel two, two years, yes. two years in a row, yes. which was a lot of fun. Uh, but Girls on Film, in case anyone hasn't listened to your amazing podcast, which they should, uh, tell us a bit about it. So it's a female-focused film podcast. Uh, we highlight female filmmakers and female film critics in particular. But men are welcome if they made interesting films about women. We had Bo Burnham on. Um, mm. We've had some great people like Lindsay Hamilton, um, Brie Larson, Amara Sante. And um, we kind of welcome newcomers and um, sort of old faces favourites really and we dissect things from a feminist point of view one of our favourite episodes with the listeners was Tenet we sat down and we oh, deconstructed wow. that the female characters in that and actually a lot of men came to us and said that's made me think differently about that film and I always take that as a compliment when men say it's not just women listening to Girls on Film the men say okay it's made me think about film differently and I think that's the greatest compliment that's great well if you haven't listened to Girls on Film uh, you absolutely should it is a wonderful listen. So are you excited to be joining us for this pairing? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid versus Thelma and Louise. I'm very excited. I was thrilled to be asked. Um, You know, I'm not going to reveal my thoughts on the various two yet, obviously, Mm. but I think they are a valid pairing and I can see why you've put them together. And I think there's a lot to discuss. While I'd love to take credit for putting them together, these choices were these choices. Tell us you're working out, Victoria. (laughs) So these choices were kind of Chris's choices. No, (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm only joking. I really wanted to do Thelma and Louise and have done for ages because it's one of my favourite films but I just couldn't figure out what to pair it with but mm. because Chris knows everything about film you did put these two together like mm. it's obvious when you said it but it did I think it took us quite a long while to come to it yeah we talked about Bonnie and Clyde we talked about sightseers which I'm desperate to do yeah. and then but then with the endings and then when you watch them back to back there are a lot it of similarities it does make yeah. sense yeah well we have some uh, interesting guesses about what our listeners think Thelma and Louise could have been paired with uh, but remind us of the clue you gave last week friends till the end <laughs> What was that expression? I forgot. (laughs) Friends to the end, you followed that up on Twitter with... I had a really good clue, but it was too similar to yours, but I want to say it now. Go on. Chums on the run. (laughs) That's good. Uh, I I used, uh, you can run, but you can't hide. So we're on Twitter at ClashPod, also on Instagram at ClashPod, and the guesses came steaming in faster than the Pacific Flyer. A lot of guesses involving Thelma and Louise. Uh, Tim Wilkins and Kirsten Ellen Young said Thelma and Louise versus Monster. Mm-hmm. A few of those. Danny Baker, Thelma and Louise versus Nuns on the Run. Chums on the Run. Mm. And uh, Ruari Smythe, Thelma and Louise versus The Running Man. Okay, but congratulations to our only correct guest this yes. week. Uh, yeah, you love it, don't you? What does it mean if only one person gets it right? We got the, the clues were perfect. Clues Not too perfect. easy, not too hard. Uh, congratulations. I think I always say this and you always go, they've won previously. Rich Cracknell, first time winner, I think. Congratulations to you. Let's do the connection section. What have you got? Armed robbery. <laughs> Did you notice any connections between these two? Well, there are some obvious ones which you'll probably get into, but I think the fact that Brad Pitt looks like a lot like Robert Redford. My God, he's identical. <laughs> oh, that's a good I point. I think that's a deliberate casting move. And <laughs> yeah. He rocks in with a cowboy hat and he is a robber. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Cowboy robbers got that. Death. <laughs> I mean, Secondly, a lot of films have death, death. isn't it? Try and get it more specific, <laughs> Okay, freeze frames on of death. slightly Agreed. ambiguous deaths, but definitely death, but maybe not death. Mm. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> uh, photographs. 
subtle, the mm. photo montage and the Polaroids in Thermonries. Mm. Polite robberies. Yeah. These are oh, the politest good. thieves in history, aren't good. they? Uh, lots of things like friendship, outlaws. Um, as, as the end approaches for, in both films, they, both characters start planning their futures. It's quite sad. Yes, sort of pretend, pretending that everything's going to yes. be fine, mm, yeah. Yeah, deluding themselves and each other. Yeah. So I have questions about that, which I'll say for the end of Butch Cassidy, but I do have questions about that exact subject. Uh, both won the Best Screenplay Award at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Any more for any more? Um, we're getting to the behind the scenes, but it's interesting, I think, that in both cases, uh, Paul Newman for Butch and, and um, Gina Davis for Thelma and Louise, they both flip-flopped on who they would be playing. So we could have oh. got versions of both these films where they played the other character and they weren't sure which character they should play. Okay. Mm. I did not know that. Mm. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. All right, then. So, if you're ready, shall we get into this? Mm -hmm. Well, on Thursday, Chris is doing the show and it's going to drop off a cliff as he takes us through Thelma and Louise, which means today I'm asking, who are those guys in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Let me take you on a journey. Butch and Sundance have made a good living as career criminals. Butch is the brains and Sundance is the brawn. They are also very beautiful. And I spent a lot of this film trying to figure out who I fancied more. Anyway, as the Old West starts to disappear, modernization makes their Robin more difficult and they find themselves in a sticky situation when the most badass posse ever formed is paid to hunt them down. They can't be reasoned with. They can't be bargained with. And they absolutely will not stop. They're Cowboy Terminators, which genuinely is a better pitch than the last three Terminator movies. <laughs> anyway, Butch and Sundance escape to Bolivia, along with Sundance's gal, Etta, who thankfully remembers not to whine or make a nuisance, so she doesn't get dumped flat. She does fulfil her promise, though, to piss off home before our duo get gunned <laughs> down by the Bolivian army and die. Or, if you're the nine-year-old me, definitely didn't die because you don't actually see them die, and so they definitely escape somehow because you can't have movies where your heroes die. What the fuck's wrong with you? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, for your consideration, Butch Casting the Sundance Kid. So, histories with this movie. Anna, would you like to start? When did you first see this movie? Actually, probably only about 10 years ago. Okay. I didn't see it when I was young. I didn't see it as a kid. It's not the kind of film that I studied or that I grew up with. So I didn't have more associations other than sort of seeing it fleetingly on TV, the sort of thing, you know, the Sunday afternoon. So I did watch it in seriousness and sort of sat down 10 years ago. And I was a little bit underwhelmed, I've got to say, wow. because maybe it's coming to it later. Um, you know, obviously, when you, as you were saying, if you were nine years old and you're watching that, you have a lot of excitement, a lot of associations. Mm. Um, but I didn't like the characters very much, so I had quite a few problems with that. Um, I, you, you know, they didn't like Butch no, and Sundance, not particularly. They treat people horribly, except for each other. Interesting. Um, so I therefore wasn't really invested in their fate, mm-hmm. um, even though I can see that if you were invested in them, it would be very emotional at the ending. But I just wasn't invested in them because I thought they were pretty arrogant and they made some very foolish decisions. Um, obviously, there are some great moments, which we can, we'll get into. Um, and I did find it reasonably amusing in parts, mm-hmm. but I do think it's overhyped. And I think it's interesting that when it first came out, it was not that well reviewed. Mm. And then it became a bit of a cult hit. So I felt like I'm more in line with the early reviews. If I'd been sent that to review um, for, for a column this week, I would go three stars. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. Was it Pauline Kale, uh, the famous reviewer, uh, said she felt depressed and rather offended after reviewing a facetious empty Western. Uh, and time went further and called it absurd and anachronistic. Mm-hmm. So, it's, yeah. it's interesting on the on the behind on the documentaries on on the Blu-rays and DVDs. They've got some critics who reviewed it uh, poorly at the time, 
looking at it now, analysing it now and saying they like it now more than they did then. And a couple of people say they were offended by the fact that it was like taking the piss out of Westerns mm. and that they considered Westerns to be a very pure form of art and that this this sort of postmodern take on the genre was something they were offended by at the time. And with the distance of time now, they were like, no, I had that wrong, actually. This was it did kind of put a full stop on the Western, but I like what they were doing. I just didn't understand it at the mm. time. So when did you see it? Well, my mum loves Cary Grant and Paul Newman. Mm. So I grew up on Cary Grant and Paul Newman films. So yeah, I saw this when I was a kid. Okay. Mm-hmm. Remember enjoying it? Yep. Like how old though? Only because I'm, I'm I know exactly how old I was when I saw it. I don't know how old oh. I was. Six, seven, eight. Okay, yeah, so really, young, young. I really enjoyed it. I mm. thought it was a bit boring in the middle, mm. but like the beginning and end. Okay. Like an eight-year-old. B? I saw it at college, so Mark made me watch it, and I didn't want to watch it. I'm it was like, definitely on his VHS shelf. This, yeah, because Mark's mum loves Paul Newman, so I was like, I'm not watching this mum film, like not in a million years. And so I had the reverse experience to you, Anna, because my expectations were so low. So I was like, I don't want to watch it; it's going to be boring. And then I was laughing, but because, like you're saying about not being invested in the characters, when they go to rob the flyer, if I if I was coming to it fresh, I'd be like, why do I care what you get up to? Like, there's nothing in it for me at this point with your characters. But because I was like, oh, I'm actually quite enjoying this, that gets away with it. So the lore of the film added to my enjoyment of it because I knew it was a big deal. I didn't realise how poorly it was reviewed until I looked into it this week, but I knew it was this like juggernaut thing. So that's why I enjoyed it because it was better than I thought it was going to be shit. And it's not. So there we go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're right. It's like 1969 and it made 102 million. Biggest film of that year audiences absolutely loved it i watched it when i was nine years old and um again because my mum loved paul newman and mm. she was like you've got to see this new movie paul newman's in it and i do remember watching it at nine years old and not really getting robert redford not finding him cool at all i agree yeah but thinking paul newman as butch cassidy was the coolest character i'd ever seen mm. and, that stayed with me though paul newman's my guy yeah it's weird and i was like i thought because i was trying to work out what it was about robert redford's character that made me as a nine-year-old go i don't i don't i don't think you're cool and I think it was the moustache. <laughs> I don't think any of my heroes that I, that I was watching on screen, but well, Reynolds. that's it. That's the only <laughs> just one. undermined your argument. Yeah, I know, which is the only one I can think of. The bandit had a moustache, so it can't have been the tash. But yeah, I remembered three things from it. I remembered the jump off the cliff. Mm. I remembered the uh, bicycle montage for mm, some reason. Yeah, I always remember that it, one. Because yeah. it goes on for so bloody long. <laughs> it really does. And that song. And I do remember the end uh, mm. because I genuinely was like, they didn't die. That uh, They will have escaped somehow. That's why they didn't show the death. If Unless you die on screen, you're not actually dead, despite the repeated gunshots uh, over the photograph. All right, then. I'll tell you a little bit about this movie. I'll try and get through this. God, there was a lot. Uh, so, author and screenwriter William Goldman first comes across the real-life story of Butch Cassidy in the 50s and does about eight years of research uh, because there is no internet. So he actually has to read books and find articles, which is why it took him eight years. He wasn't sure what he was going to do with it because um, he wasn't sure if he wanted to do a novel or a screenplay, but he knew that this story was amazing. And he thought it was amazing because of this theme of Butch and Sundance doing the thing that everyone really wants to do in life, apparently, according to William Goldman, which is recapture their golden years. And they actually do it. They have a whole second life in Bolivia where they become more famous than they were in the US. So in the end, he decides I'm going to do it as a screenplay um, because he couldn't do a novel uh, because he said to make a Western novel, first of all, he didn't like Western novels. Uh, I've never read a Western novel. Have any of you read Western novels? Not, not a single one in my life. 
Oh, no. Mm. You know, I always go on, I accidentally read Cormac McCarthy's The Blood Meridian on holiday. How did you accidentally read it? I didn't realise what was in it. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of like hiding in the stomachs of dead cows <laughs> and there's a lot of scalping in it. And I was on a beach and it wasn't suitable. So I read that. Mm. That's a Western, kind of. Mm. Never, never read one. I, I, I wouldn't be inclined to. No, it's, it's... No, and don't do it on holiday. Well, he doesn't say whether it was on a holiday or not. He said he couldn't write a novel because you have to make it authentic. And to make it authentic, you've had to do more research. And he's <laughs> he didn't shit, have time. <laughs> shit scared of horses. He couldn't go near a horse. Really? And so he felt that he needed to be near horses to write it. So he turns it into his first original screenplay. And uh, he writes it, finishes writing it in 1968. Um, and it wasn't well received by the studios because of this third act in Bolivia. And he took it to the studios and everyone was like, this is, this is just not what a Western can be. And he says it's because Butch and Sundance do what no character in a Western would ever do and ran away. Uh, they run away from the posse to Bolivia and all the studio execs were like, no, absolutely not. They've got to stay. A, you've got to stay in the Old West and B, they have to have a gunfight with this posse that's chasing them. Or as one exec put it, I don't give a shit if it actually happened. All I know is one thing, John Wayne, don't run away. <laughs> so that was the feeling about it. Uh, at this point, it was called The Sundance Kid and Butch Cassidy. And uh, it got changed when Paul Newman goes, I'll join it, but I'll play Butch Cassidy. And so I think it's probably going to be called <laughs> Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It was the, I didn't realise this, highest m amount ever paid for a screenplay. Uh, it was uh, George Zanuck uh, was given $200,000 to spend on a new script. And um, his agent, or rather William Goldman's agent, uh, managed to get him $400,000. Wow. The equivalent in today's money of £2.8 million for this screenplay. And obviously, Paul Newman gets attached. He was the only person that uh, anyone had in mind. He'd had loads of success with Cool Hand Luke. So he comes in and he's Butch Cassidy. And then they struggle a bit to find the Sundance Kid. They offered it to Jack Lemon, who uh, said, I don't want to ride a horse again, and so turned it down. Have you ever ridden a horse? Yes. It's no. fucking I mean, terrifying. It is quite scary. Do you do a lot of riding? No, I don't do a lot. Okay. No, no, I'm not a big fan. Um, but I'm wondering why everyone involved in this does seem to be adverse to horses in this story. <laughs> I'm just wondering. Yeah. It's very ironic, isn't it? It's so strange. I, have you been on a horse? Really? I have, yeah. Well, She's unbelievable. I, can't, I actually thought you, you would say... You can't picture me on a no, horse. No, never. <laughs> you have been on a horse, Alex. <laughs> it's, not <laughs> coming, it's not coming on your upbringing. You didn't have the kind of life that would uh, lead you to a horse. <laughs> you wouldn't think you would listen to me, but I, I managed to sneak onto a horse once. <laughs> <laughs> I can't now. Now I know you're lying. I can't imagine you sneaking onto a horse. <laughs> go and go. <laughs> Yeah, I got on a horse once and having watched a lot of movies with horses in, I was like, just fucking riding a horse, it's easy. Got on it, <laughs> terrifying. Mm. You're so high up and it's an animal between your legs that you can't control. If you're me, it just does its own thing. I was actually... Oh, was really... Control the animal between your legs, Alex. I've just remembered this. Who were those two cleaners? They did a, a show on Channel 4. There was the, large, uh, the, the, the larger lady had blonde hair and she was on Big Brother. Oh, thingy. 
the how clean Aggie, Aggie. And, yeah, Aggie, yeah. So she was the one on Big Brother. We were making a show about bird watching for Sky, and she was on it. And like, I mean, she really could have sued the producers because they put her on a horse, and she was terrified. She didn't want to be on it and couldn't control it. And the horse walked straight into a low branch of a tree, and she no. was left hanging on this branch <laughs> as the horse carried on walking no. and had to be rescued from the branch, like a comedy film. No. It, it, <laughs> It was, it was. How long really was she up there? Too long for it to be comfortable and funny. Wow. <laughs> it's quite strong, though. To... Yeah, she held on. It's quite high up. <laughs> I just totally forgot about that. Uh, anyway, it was uh, Paul Newman's wife who suggests Redford. Um, I didn't realise, again, this was like the breakthrough role for mm. Redford. He'd done Barefoot in the Park, and mm. so he became known as sort of a preppy comedy guy. But no one, he wasn't a household name. And yeah, no one, th- well, particularly Daryl Zanuck didn't think he could. Is it Daryl or Richard Zanuck? Richard Zanuck. Uh, didn't think he could He could cut it as a cowboy. Just yeah. wouldn't buy this clean cut blonde dude. Yeah, uh, he wanted Steve McQueen. Um, but uh, Robert Redford says, George, the director, went to the mat for me. They kept forcing him to look at other candidates, but eventually they ran out of other actors. <laughs> so yeah, Redford gets it. Um and McQueen was sort of really interested in being in it, but he uh, dis uh, he disagreed over who should get top billing. That happens a lot with McQueen, because mm. uh, that's why I think Taring Inferno they're kind of diagonally the na- the two names, uh, Newman and McQueen, so that one name and first name and last name's first. But yeah, they Zanuck said that they they just had these awful ridiculous meetings where he literally would he had a globe and said fifty percent you'll be first billing and 50% of the world you'll be first billing and yet still they couldn't agree on it these two these, <laughs> which 50% of the world <laughs> these two egos yeah and he said oh, oh we'll have a wheel that'll turn with your names on it and it's just like <laughs> it was so ridiculous that in the end he just walked away and Brando was going to do it but, but all they said was Brando was going to do it and then he disappeared <laughs> very Marlon Brando so yeah uh, they only ever made two films together Newman and Red for this and the Sting They were. I didn't know that it was um a Walk in the Woods uh, was going to be Robert Redford and um, uh, Paul Newman again, but sadly, obviously, Paul Newman passed away at that point, which is uh, why eventually Nick Nolte steps into that role. So, uh, yeah, pretty much uh, that's about it, unless you've got anything you'd really like to add to the background of this film. Um, no. It's quite sweet. I, I, I love uh, the director, um, George Roy Hill. Uh, he said after um, he'd uh, finished it and it was about to be released... It was a hell of a lot of hard work doing it. And I actually uh, had even more fun than I did work. And if audiences don't dig it, I think I'm going to go out of my fucking mind. (laughs) Which was the audio clip I was going to play. Oh, really? (laughs) Play it anyway. He'll do it better. (laughs) It's very funny when he's... um... We need to talk more before each episode. (laughs) I have now spent exactly a year and three months on this film. And at this point, I don't know yet how it's going to be received. I think it's a good film. I think the guys are great in it. And I think the relationships work. Uh, it was a hell of a lot of hard work doing it. And actually even more fun. And if the audiences don't take it, I uh, I think I'll go out of my fucking mind. <laughs> they kind of drown him out with the piano, but you can just say fucking mind. 
up the piano, up, up, up higher. And that's the last That's the last line in the whole documentary. Brilliant. It's professionally honest, isn't it, actually? I've never had a director talk like that in an interview. This is a documentary it. from about 1970, 1971. So it's not like modern documentaries. And I've got some quotes from him, not the audio, but just he swears a lot on this and he's brutally honest. Some of it is quite uncomfortable to hear, but it's just quite refreshing. Yeah. Well, let's get into the film. I will say one thing, because I'm going to talk about the script a lot. Um, and uh, William Goldman, I found a, a quote from him. Obviously, you know, double Oscar winner, one for all the President's Men, one for this. Uh, he says, if you only write screenplays, it is ultimately denigrating to the soul. You may get lucky and get rich, but you sure won't get happy. Wow. Mm. You may get lucky, I'm going to get rich. You probably won't. <laughs> 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 all right, then. Uh, so let's talk about the opening sequence of this movie. Well, let's talk about the titles first and what looks like authentic newsreel footage of uh, Butch and Sundance and a hole in the wall gang robbing the train. Uh, interestingly, that was pulled from a later scene in the movie and moved to the start. I'll talk about it when it comes up, but they wanted to use it somehow, but it was actually going to be in the Bolivia sequence where Butch and Sundance are watching that footage. But we'll get to that. So... We're outside a bank and then we're inside a bank as Butch is casing this bank. And this is a, a, a great, efficient opening where the entire theme of this movie is stated in three freaking lines, which is kind of amazing. He says, what was the matter with the old bank this town used to have? It was beautiful. People kept robbing it. That's a small price to pay for beauty. What do you guys think of this opening? In terms of this theme in this film, which runs throughout of... The world is changing and you have to change with them if you want to survive. Vicky. <laughs> Are you picking me? I thought I'd go around in a clockwise fashion, yeah. Well, that was such an interesting point, Alex. Thank you for throwing it over to me. And I would say, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with you that the film of the, the dauntless, faceless march of progress mm. is summed up in this opening. But when you watch it for the first time, you kind of miss that because what you like is, like, oh, that's a cool thing to say. Yes. Um, so you're not like, wow, yeah, mm. the march of capitalism. But later on, it's obviously hammered home um, by the fact that the gang arrive on a very advanced steam train and that they've got torches on their horses. And that's when the theme sort of clicks into place for me anyway, having only seen this two times. But first time around, I was like, wow, you're so cool and handsome. Yeah, I mean, I really like that last line. You know, it's a small price to pay for beauty. To pay for beauty. But William Goldman uh, hates it. He says it's too smart ass. I mean, as I you, mean, right, as <laughs> quite we a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, he says that about the whole film. He says there's too much smart assery in the script. But as 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 we know from previous episodes, Serenity, Captain Mal, fucking love a smart ass. Yeah. So <laughs> I, it suits me down to the ground. Chris, did you enjoy this? Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm like Vicky. I wasn't really focusing on that. I was just trying to figure out how Paul Newman's eyes could be so blue that I could see the blue through the black and white. Mm. I'm sure I could. <laughs> yeah. It's magic. It's a magic trick he's done. He's so beautiful. Uh, so uh, this is the introduction to the theme of the film. And now we meet Sundance in this card game. Uh, again, like, I didn't get Sundance as a nine-year-old. Now, looking at him, captivating. Yeah. Can I ask... I know it's jumping ahead of it, so Chris is going to... But we've got a guest, so I'll get away with it because mm. he won't Shout embarrass... Yeah. Public, <laughs> publicly shame you, yeah. Yeah, in front of our friend. Mm. Um, so when you were nine and you don't quite get Robert Redford, how do you feel about him later when he goes to Etta's house? Did you get that scene or did you not understand what was going on? I didn't remember that scene mm. first time round. All right. I was watching it this time and 
It's interesting. I mean, because it was fresh to me, I was watching it going, he's not that guy. So yeah. this, this, is, this is your classic switch and bait. Okay. Bait and switch. Yes. Why? Just because for me, I'd forgotten about it, but it goes on such a long time. Mm. So you're, you're, it's a really brave choice, but you do spend like two minutes thinking that one of your heroes is a rapist. And that's odd. Do you though? Yes. Yeah, I have a big problem with that scene. I mean, it's barely to say that, but I think the very fact that it's being set up as a joke, Mm. um, I'm sorry, rape is not funny. And the fact that you're, you know, this is meant to be hilarious that you've been lured into thinking that he's about to rape someone at gunpoint and then, oh, she's with him anyway and she acquiesces. And then also it's sexualized. You know, that whole thing is eroticized. Mm. Um, So it's very much from um, a kind of leery male point of view that he's asking her to undress. So just because it's then, oh, we're only joking. I think that just makes it quite sickening. It's a long time to say th- to your audience, this is who this guy is. And uh, how is that for you? I guess in the filmmakers' heads, they were going, but the longer mm, that you do no. it for, but that's what they will have been yeah. doing. It's the longer you do it for, the more you sort of lure people into going, really? And then in theory, the old switcheroo at the yeah, end is meant it's... to be like, oh, you get a bigger response. Yeah. But I'm not saying it's right. Mm. I'm just saying that's why I think it goes on for that length of time. So, uh, yeah, we have jumped ahead, classic Vicky, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I'm glad we got there already. Good. Uh, so this card game, though, it's uh, this is what a, what a fantastic introduction for Sundance. It's the moment that Butch says his name, I can't help you, Sundance. And it's the card player, the guy who stood up. It's the expression on his face. He sells the shit out of the word Sundance because he just goes from being this badass to like that flash of sheer terror mm. on his face. And a blink he does. Really good. And so we've been told that Sundance is the best STEM gunslinger in the West. Fastest draw. But we obviously have to see it, which we do. It's quite good. I mean, he shoots a guy's belt off. Yeah, reading up on a lot of the history of this, there seems to be contrasting accounts. Uh, most historians say there's no real evidence to, to suggest that Sundance was an incredible marksman. Apart from the members of his family who've written books about him, who all say that he was the fastest gun in the West and quicker than a snake's tongue is what one of them. Mm. I mean, you kind of would do though, wouldn't you? Like, yeah, no, like, that's what I'm saying. Good, it's quite we funny. want you to write a book about. He's actually really normal and a bit of a shit shot. Like, we don't want you to write a book anymore. <laughs> oh no, no, no! Sorry, did I say shit? No, he was amazing. <laughs> Didn't a similar thing happen with Butch Cassidy's sister, who went? He, he didn't die. Yeah, he's, I read uh, that this morning. He's definitely alive. <laughs> but she, then they did uh, dig up the corpses behind mm. the bank that. It's meant to be them two. Saint Vincent. And it's not or, them two. Yeah. Or she she visited the set. Mm. She was at the premiere and she made up the fact that he was alive and came back to America and lived with them and lived this life uh, simply because she wasn't getting any money yeah. from the make of this film. So she decided just to get herself a bit of fame and attention. And I think it's brilliant. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> She's about yeah. 90 at the time, just going around and making up all these oh, shit. Oh, yeah, he's in my house now. <laughs> she wrote a whole book, said he came to visit his sick father. She said he was driving a brand new silver Ford. Uh, he turns up and then they interviewed other members of the Cassidy family and they said the book was, uh, and I quote, a pack of lies. <laughs> they weren't making any money off it, you see. So uh, we meet Sundance uh, and then we're off to the Hole in the Wall. This is a real place, uh, the Hole in the Wall. Uh, that's where they got their name. Uh, it's uh, a canyon, a really well-guarded canyon, which is where the real-life Hole in the Wall gang actually hung out. They were the last big outlaw gang of the Old West, led by Butch Cassidy. Not because he was tough, strong, ruthless, or even the brains, because apparently the real-life Butch Cassidy was massively likeable. Like, right. people loved him. Like, he could ride up to people and go, I'm being chased by the law. Will you hide me? And they'd be like, you're Butch Cassidy. Yeah. 
which is what we actually get to see when the train pulls up and the driver goes, that's Butch Cassidy. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. That was the mm. reaction people had to him. He was like a really charming human. Uh, as we see in his introduction, when Logan tries to usurp him <laughs> as leader of the hole in the wall, uh, the hole in the wall game. Ted Cassidy as Logan. So good. I had to look him up. Did you recognise him? The big guy. He, yeah, I knew I knew him from something. Fill me in. He's Lurch in the Adams Family. No! Oh, yes. <laughs> oh my God, of course, of course he is. Yes. And, That's and, so annoying. And he's got that ridiculous deep voice. His, it's his voice you hear in the opening credits of every episode of The Incredible Hulk explaining what happened to Banner in the, in the lab. <laughs> really? Yeah. So two big bits of my childhood was this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I absolutely I love this whole sequence. Uh, the bit where... The bit where he goes, look, I don't want to be a sore loser, uh, but if uh, when it's over, if I'm dead, kill him. <laughs> and Sundance goes, love to. And it's the wave that Robert Redford, that yeah. smile and the wave <laughs> he gives yeah. Logan is just, it's just the most beautiful thing. Shit-eating grin, I think they call it. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, yeah, this is a this is a great introduction. There was a big dispute uh, between um, Goldman and Hill uh, with the producers because the producers felt that in this sequence they needed uh, to have Sundance go look. If it gets bad, I'll I'll help you out. They needed something that suggested that Sundance was there to help Butch, and Goldman was like, absolutely not. What cements this relationship as being something different? Because he had this belief that these characters needed to be really likable, which is why it's interesting that you didn't like them. Because <laughs> his whole thing was they need to be likable and they need to be so interesting and so unique to what we've seen before that you will follow them everywhere and anywhere, which is why when we get to Bolivia, which is such a curveball for a film like this, people will still be like, I don't care. I'm with them. And he was, he was like, the fact that Butch doesn't ask for help and Sundance doesn't offer it is the key to this whole scene. And they won in the end. It's just great. It's just great. If you can't tell already, I absolutely love this film. I just can't get how you can't like them. Well, I, I agree with what you're saying about the scene that it establishes their characters well. Mm. I think it's effective in that regard and I think it's much more interesting. I think that was the right decision to make for that scene um, because it establishes them as both very independent people but who have a great relationship regardless. Um, but I still felt that they were very self-centred throughout the film and obviously a lot of that does have something to do with the way they treat women. You know, this is a, obviously a way I'm going to come to a lot of angles mm -hmm. hosting the podcast that I do. But I think, you know, 50, at least 50% of the population watching the film would feel the same way, if not more. Um, I mean, we can go into that more later, but I yeah. think that's that's a big part of it for me. Um, but also, you know, the way they don't seem to be very remorseful about shooting people. Uh, in general I mean it also it's just a waste of resource like they're, they're a gang they're a unit and he's saying to Sundance if I, if I, if I die make sure he dies too and then like look, almost half your gang's gone and after all the training and all the camaraderie, that to me seems like a flippant waste of resources. But... Do you think they had outlaw training? <laughs> well, yeah, a little bit. Do you not think? I don't know. I they think it was, it was, it was horse, more like, right? are you capable and of killing someone? And then they ran a, a law branch and said, if you fall off that branch, you're not in the gang. That's what they did. <laughs> that, was, that was the show we were doing. <laughs> the show wasn't bird watching. If someone killed Alex, would you not kill them? If it was you, yeah. <laughs> and let's be honest, it probably would be probably, me. Yeah, so I'm ready. Whenever you want to go, I'm ready. At the, at the end of a particularly dramatic verdict. Yeah. <laughs> Feels horribly real. Real, really, really real. Uh, what I love about this eight years of research that William Goldman did, like like little bits of the screenplay that you go, that's kind of fun and cool and funny, was just ripped from reality. Like News mm. Carver, when he's like, goes, wait, I want to get to the best bit and reads his own name out from yeah. the clipping. 
the guy was called News. He was a real member of the Hole in the Wall gang. He was called News because he was loved. He loved seeing his name in clippings. And so that he's just gone, I'll put that in the script. Research. Yeah. Research. It's amazing. Research. Yeah. So next section, the good train robbery. Uh, they rob the Pacific Fly the first time. It's all going well. Uh, we have a wonderful exchange with Woodcock. Uh, Charles Woodcock, a real person. Uh, again, all based on fact, he wouldn't let them in. Uh, and they did blow it up with dynamite and he did survive and get injured. But he was like very, very loyal to E.H. Harriman. Um, so the robbery's a uh, success. Uh, let's meet Etta. Um, so we're over with Catherine Ross playing Etta. Now, we've touched on this. I wrote, it's your classic bait and switch scene. Is it? Is it your classic? <laughs> you see this all the time. Yeah. But it's that reversal. It's not your classic. I mean, mm. the structure of it is the, the classic. It's like the whole when they're about to jump off the cliff scene. It's the same thing. It starts with him going, we can make it, we can make it, we can make it. I can't swim. What are you talking about? The fall or killers. It's yes. that whole reversal thing. Uh-huh. But you didn't like him. I don't like it, no. I Chris, mean... you've stayed very quiet on this subject. <laughs> yeah, well, we hadn't got to that bit yet. We're here now. Um, I felt like, uh, first time I watched it, it's a bit shocking. And then the more I thought about it, trying to get into William Goldman's head, I felt like he was thinking, well, why would this school teacher... Well, he's, he's, he's sort of doing a sex scene between a uh, these two characters... Why would this? What would this school teacher and this cold-blooded killer do behind closed doors? What would their sex life be like? And I felt like in his head it was like, well, it would be a bit of role play because mm. why else would you go out with this dangerous killer if you're a sweet, innocent uh, teacher? And so that's where I thought he was coming from. I mean, I think it's interesting that he decided that she should be a school teacher because most of the evidence points to her being a sex worker in real life. And as I say, there's some uncomfortable quotes on that documentary. Uh, Goldman says he thought she was too pretty to be a hooker uh, <laughs> because there's one photograph of Etta or Ethel, as she's her, uh, people say her real name is. And so um, he, yeah, he just thought with a face like that, she couldn't have possibly uh, been a sex worker. And so he made her a school teacher. And again, the uh, the family of um, Sundance believe that she wasn't a sex worker as well. Uh, they've got all kinds of stories about what she was, who she was, but the historians seem to think that she probably was. Well, there's some theories that she's actually, you know, there were two identities. She was actually like a farm worker that he had an affair with um, when she was younger. And then they've got these two pictures, if you look it up on the internet, and mm. these two women that do look remarkably similar. Right. And there's this whole conspiracy theory that they're both the same person. Right, yeah, because that's what they say. She's a farm worker. Right. She's the daughter of someone that owned land and that. So, yeah, it's interesting that they're all these different. But it, I, I think it's it, it's surprising that Goldman took that decision really when he's based so much of it in reality but he couldn't bear to have this character uh, be that kind of person yeah I mean the way you do it now or to make it palatable is that the, when people do the bait and switch with a couple it's the, the oh we've the, we've met for the first time and, and sorry is this seat taken and, and that, all that and that's really cute but whatever the truth is when you're watching this film for the first time mm. it's sold to you as a buddy movie the poster says something about they're taking one piece of baggage which I think is her in the poster which is not good <laughs> so, is that the tagline? yeah no, two, it's, it's like not. two wow. buddies one, wow. one trip of a lifetime and they're taking one piece of baggage wow. and it's either a horse or it's her so whatever. Um, is the but, baggage not the people coming after them? Possibly, but the mm. way that the position of the text is yeah, next to sure. her. On sure. the nah. <laughs> so fine. But you, so because it's portrayed as a buddy movie, you're supposed to like the characters. You're supposed to like them, and you're supposed to like them equally. I think at this point, so it's fair to say that Sundance is also your hero. So you're watching your hero 
rape someone for like over two minutes and then you're supposed to laugh and it's like that's just such a lot to take in and then you're supposed to like course correct yourself and think oh but I'm with you I'll go to Bolivia with you so there's no problem um, as the audience and it's a little bit difficult even though Etta's character she seems to be into it so you're supposed to forgive him you spend a very long a really uncomfortable amount of time thinking he's something that he isn't and that like you said it's that's played for laughs and that's all a bit hard to swallow yeah i think it's i think that was the first point on which i started to sort of turn against the film you know quite strongly and against him as a character because obviously i don't think there's much coming back from that even if it's being set up that way and you know it's yeah. a joke you just feel actually slightly resentful of the filmmakers for playing that trick because it's not a very nice trick Um, and also as I said it is all from the male point of view we've seen plenty of those films where the couple have the sex games you know the burglar fantasy all that you know from uh, from both points of view or from the women's point of view the, the fact that it was so much from his point of view and trying to trick the viewer I thought was really made me really uncomfortable yes because you're exposed to say I wonder what's going to happen next and that's a bit gross when you think about it Mm. and on that note let's take a short break Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi everyone, Marcus from the Football Ramble here. We know that keeping up with all the football can be quite a tricky task, even for those at the top of the game. Wayne Rooney says he's been sleeping in his office. Yep. Diligent. Get dedicated. some signings. Get signings. Get some signings yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. everything's done by fax, isn't it? Yeah. So he can't go home. I like my dinner in the dog. That's actually how I <laughs> eat my food these days. <laughs> <laughs> Even those who run the clubs are having a mare. I guess the system they have at Barcelona is that someone can come in and be president for a bit and the destruction they leave is, is someone else's problem. Thankfully, there's an easier way for you to keep up with all the football this season. Listen to the Football Ramble every weekday for the biggest stories from the Premier League and around the world. From the sublime to the ridiculous, the bust-ups to the cock-ups, it's your definitive guide to the new season. Just search Football Ramble in your podcast app to listen now. The Football Ramble is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 
Okay, we're back. And now it's time for the bad train robbery where things go wrong. Uh, the Woodcock repeat is wonderful. Uh, in real life, uh, sadly, it's not quite as entertaining. Uh, he just opened the door. I thought you said he just died. No. <laughs> oh no. When they when they it was, just killed him. When it was Woodcock the second time, they went, open the door. Do you want to get blown up again? And the door was already open. He was like, <laughs> fuck that. No. Yeah. So his loyalty only went so far. Uh, but we meet, and I'm never going to get bored of saying this word, the super posse. <laughs> <laughs> it's my new favourite word. There's a super posse who are introduced in ominous fashion, that terrifying train that turns up and then the doors open and they're already on horseback. It's great. And the fact that you never see their faces yeah. is so, it's such a nice touch. And they misname them a few times. And so mm. it's Lord, what do they, who, what's the Lord? Lord Baltimore. Baltimore. And then Joe, whoever mm. it Joe is. Joe Lafors. So Joe Lafors was a real lawman mm. in real life um, who was paid by... Um, E.H. Harriman, the train company owner, who did feel picked on by Butch Cassidy. He was mm. like, why are you robbing my trains? So he paid for the super posse to get together. Lord Baltimore, the Native American who's taken uh, a, a Western name, wasn't real. That was William Goldman's creation. I feel like the super posse, the way they're shot in this film and presented, it reminded me, I feel like they influenced Peter Jackson with the Black Riders mm. in Lord of the Rings. Mm. You know, the, yeah. the, just the focusing on the hooves and seeing the distance coming. And Certainly that chase at the end of uh, Fellowship when mm. they're uh, chasing Liv Tyler to mm. the Ford of Bruin. It's a lot like that. Yeah. Uh, in real life, again, this is where it's a beautiful meld of fact and fiction. Because in real life, the minute Butch heard that a super posse had been formed, fucked off to Bolivia. He didn't wait to be chased. They never caught him. They never found him. They never even chased him. He was already in Bolivia by the time they were like, right, where is he? Yeah, because, you know, the chase does go on too long. I, I believe it's 27 minutes. But, um, you know, Goldman's reasoning for that is that he couldn't just show them running off. So he wanted to build up this time and this chase and this this sort of immovable object um, coming at them because he believed the audience would then, after those 27 minutes, forgive our heroes for running away because... There's no choice at that point. I think you could have done it in ten minutes, but <laughs> really, I I think it goes on the perfect length of time for me. This is this is one of the strongest moment, like sequences of the whole film. This chase, I was really tense throughout the fact that they they go onto rock and they're like they can't track us on rock and then they can. It's it works for me. I wouldn't have it any shorter. It's quite an unusual thing, I think, for that that time to do this in a film. Nowadays, we're used to seeing chases that last for half an hour mm. in mm. a Bond film or in Mission Impossible, or but more, yeah. but this was this was really sort of confounding expectations of audiences at the time. Well, um, they stop off at Old Sheriff Bledsoe's for him. This is an interesting scene. Cause I it's love sort of, this scene. Why? Because the sheriff... Well, because if you weren't getting the theme, which you <laughs> yeah. could be forgiven for not getting because <laughs> it's a bit slow and all the rest of it, he's here to tell you what's happening. So your time is up, you're going to die, and they can't get their head around it. So it's saying, yeah, like you said, this era is over and you need to change or you're going to die, but it's mm. probably too late for you to change anyway. So it was good because it helped me... Like reconfigure. Oh, right. Okay, I am right for thinking that because otherwise, what is this film about? Because mm. <laughs> it's not really a western in that traditional sense, and it's just a fun. It's funny as well. Like it's played for laughs. Like him trussing him up and like put that thing in my mouth because I'm a you know I'm the sheriff and you can't be in here and all the rest of it. Um, yeah. So I just liked it because it, it solidified for me what this film was actually about. I like the lack of subtlety in the foreshadowing. Because he says, you're going to die bloody <laughs> and all you can do is choose where. Yeah. yeah. And that's the next hour of this film. Yes. <laughs> but it does also motivate them to 
get the hell out of Dodge sure. and get to Bolivia because they don't want to die. And so they are like, right, where can we do, where can we like carry on? Where can we be us? So I was interested to find out that the Bolivia thing was real because from a 1960s odd lens, hmm. people in, I uh, saw, so, you know, someone from the US would have said Bolivia was less in quite much developed than the US, right? Hmm. So do they go to Bolivia when I thought it was purely fictional because Bolivia is quite much less developed. So their shtick still works in Bolivia, which obviously it does. So they're running away from quote marks progress and capitalism and this mm. sort of endless um, progress that was part of that's why the bicycle is so important because mm. Butch throws the bike away he doesn't get it he doesn't get what that thing yeah. could do for him they're running away from photographs and phones and wires because this, this is what was going to catch them because as, at the turn of that century law enforcement suddenly became more sophisticated and it's actually what slight you know kind of meant they had to leave as well because the the famous photograph we've got of the hole in the wall gang who were also the wild bunch that Mm -hmm. was the other name for that gang and they changed the name here because the wild bunch came out that year but we've got that famous photograph of them dressed up as dandies which they sent to their families and the pinkertons got hold of it yeah and their photo was in every it was in every shop window (laughs) and every bank they didn't get it like (laughs) they thought it was hilarious to have their photograph Mm. taken like no because these new forces of progress but also it's also because when they try again jumping ahead slightly when they try to go straight so you can also read it as like the so capitalism in terms of like unquote unskilled labor will never pay because they do try a little bit of going straight and it doesn't work for them so it's like the idea that with progress also comes like quite tricky labor situations and uh, maybe the crushing of unions and things like that so they're they're that's in the mix as well like they try to do it the right way and it doesn't work because the right way actually is a rigged game anyway hmm yeah. There you go. Yeah. Have some of that. I'll take that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was a lovely meal. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Uh, I like the bit where uh, Bledsoe apologises at the end. After going, you're going to die bloody. You just get to decide where. He goes, I'm sorry. I'm getting mean in my old age. Yeah. It's really touching because you feel like in a very short scene without um, anyone explicitly saying it, that they have had this long relationship with this guy. So um, we get the big jump off the cliff. Like it's, I just, I, it's the bit I remember from a kid because it's like one of about two stunts in the whole movie. There's really not a lot of action in this movie. I'm surprised I quite enjoyed it as a kid. I thought that was one of the coolest things I'd seen when I was a kid. And now it just looks a bit dated because yeah. we're used to seeing a, a f- car flying from one scraper to another <laughs> in Fast yeah. and Furious. But this was the equivalent of that then. Like um, Goldman talks about the fact that that brought the house down. Seeing your two heroes jump off a cliff like that, you hadn't seen stunts like that before. So it just it looks quaint now, mm. uh, but it's still funny hearing them swear. I, I think it was one of the first times I heard swearing in a film as well, which was quite exciting. <laughs> It says a bit about their characters as well. That's what I like about that scene. You know, you know, kind of the resolve that they have together and the way they're sort of joshing each other, but encouraging mm. each other and also literally taking the plunge. So, yeah, I agree. That scene works for me. Uh, apparently the other scene that people were like, whoa, uh, was when Butch, at the very start, when he's fighting Logan, kicks him in the balls because your Western heroes up until that point had never fought dirty. It was just unheard of that someone would do that. And so people gasped in the theatre and then sort of burst out laughing because this was so new to them. That's what I'd do as well. It's totally what I'd do. Yeah, 100%. 100%. (laughs) So if we fought each other, we'd just be trying to kick each other in the balls for 10 minutes. such an image. (laughs) Just scrapping in the dust. Just little legs flailing. He's got got big legs. Oh, he does have my legs. I'd get him first. <laughs> yeah, he'd just keep me at distance. Look at my Chelsea boots. Look at that point. Yeah, yeah. Right, right in there. Uh, right in your gooch. Um, <laughs> right then. Good. Let's move on. So they decide to go to um, Bolivia. 
Uh, they've decided, like, Butch is furious uh, that the super bossy is chasing them and will never stop. He says about Ed E.H. Uh, e. Harriman, if he'd just pay me what he's spending to make me stop robbing him, I'd <laughs> stop robbing him. So they're off to Bolivia. They chuck the bicycle away, very symbolic, as you said, and um, they take Etta with them uh, as long as she doesn't uh, whine at all. There are some conditions. Uh, so do you think, um, Anna, I'll ask you, do you think he's teasing her? Because they establish a woman is good cover. So basically, if she doesn't go with them, they're screwed. It's not going to work. So then when Sundance says to her, but you know, you can come on, the, you know, if you whine, or if you make a nuisance, which is like, oh, right, okay. Um, that's just, that's you being aggressive and mean. But is that actually because the type of man he is, he's begging her help but he can't be seen to be begging and she knows that he's begging because they have that sort of relationship. So that's why she doesn't go, can you not talk to me like that or I'm not going to come? Like, you need me. And I, I read it like that the first time, but then when she's basically like, I have nothing and I'm no one, so yeah, I'm definitely in. And it's like, oh, Etta, come on. <laughs> like, you've got loads going for you. You've got your own house. These guys have been troubling you. They're going now, so that's fine. You've got a nice job. But so it, it undercut my first reading of it, which was in the parlance of their relationship, he's pleading for her help in the only way he knows how. So he's not actually threatening her with being, you know, whining and making a nuisance. I think that's quite a generous interpretation. I mean, I, I think I feel that that could work in a different film with a little bit more detail about their relationship. But we've seen so little about their relationship at this stage. And I also smarted when she says, I'm 26. <laughs> My life's basically done. <laughs> yeah. You know, you guys are the most exciting thing that's happened to me yeah. in ever. Uh, it's sort yeah. of quite depressing. And obviously it says something about the times. But at the same time, yeah. And, and the fact that I, I was... I found it very offensive when he says, you know, you can't talk, you can't complain and um, come along. And then the, the fact that she acquiesces, I, I think, undermines any suggestion that you said that it might be a joke because she just says, that's fine, I'll mm. button up. Yeah. You know, and that would have been a very hard journey for anyone at that time. Oh, no, and don't forget, yeah. she does offer to do their cleaning and to do their Oh, the cooking well. and everything. Yeah. And so, the whole, the whole. So works. she's going to have loads of fun, actually. So it'll be so much fun for I her. I think so, yeah. yeah. So I get it now. I get it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Okay, yeah. carry on. Do you, not think, do you not think that's how he would have spoken to her? And do you not think those are the kind of things she would have done? Uh, she would have done those things. A woman would, have, I, I guess. I mean, who knows? Um, I think the other thing to throw into the mix, which kept me on the hook both times, is the idea of this unrequited relationship between Butch and Etta. So they talk a lot about when they're on the... I mean, the bike thing, That's a, that to me is a couple, like having fun. Mm. And then one of them says to the other, do you think it could have been different if we'd met each other first? So that's really interesting because Butch and Sundance are best friends and they've got this woman in the middle, but it doesn't seem to cause any acrimony, which is interesting. Um, and I wondered if she goes on the journey because she's like, well, if you if you keep talking to me like this, I've got this ace over my sleeve. So, and he's lovely. Have you seen his eyes? Have you seen his <laughs> blue blue eyes? So it, it's kind of fine. Um, if Sundance, you know, sort of fulfills on that promise of being a bit of a dick, there's always Butch um, if that's what she wants kind of thing. Yeah, there is a suggestion throughout of that kind of love triangle or even threesome, I think, really. Um, I think it's a threesome. Yeah, yeah, I do think that, especially yeah. during the photo montage. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, what, and when he's watching them dance on the boat. Yeah, yeah. and he looks sad, but he mm. also looks like, it looks like an even thing. It looks like the three of them are happy with the relationship as it stands. And then again later when they're in Bolivia and they've got adjoining rooms, they're really comfortable with that. And that to me is like they are, they are all maybe sleeping together and at some I'm, point. I'm right in thinking that's something that Goldman made up. I don't think there's any evidence. That... Oh, well, so yeah, in real I mean... life, Butch Cassidy's family, were when he wasn't called Butch Cassidy, were thought to be part of a secret underground railroad of 
groups of people that sheltered polyamorous um, members of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. So he may, unproven, but he may have been around polyamorous groupings in his life. So maybe that's in there, that mm. the idea of a, a thruple is not so alien to him. Mm. Yeah, and I read that some people say that she was with him first and then moved yeah. on. So Interesting. Um, but also that you you do see that the two men are very comfortable with each other sexually. You know, one's in bed with a hooker and the other one's just in mm. the same room, just ch- chatting away. Yeah. So there's that intimacy is already there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of suggestions and very funny moments, I think, that we see that suggested that. And to me, actually, that's one of the highlights of the film is that suggestion and that idea that the three of them are somehow emotionally, if not romantically entwined. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a very unique thing for a film to yeah. have like this, this setup between these two guys and... Um, and this woman, I didn't really get it as a kid. The bit where he's riding on the bicycle with her and we've seen her with Sundance at this point, Etta. And when Sundance sort of goes, uh, you can have her mm. and walks back into the house. As a kid, I was like, oh, wow. Guess <laughs> this is how it works. Oh, this is how it works, genuinely. <laughs> this is like, what's wrong with films like no, this. No, <laughs> no. I, nine years old, I was like, he's just given her away to, <laughs> yeah. But that's what it was to me. I was like, he's, he's gone, you can have her. And I, I did and that, think that was how it and, worked. And that's why you still do that to this day. <laughs> this is why trading films, women. Yeah, women are property in films. And on yeah. a serious note, and a young kid watching a film like sure. that doesn't get the nuances of that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's yeah. why Alex is broken to this day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shut up. Right. Uh, so they're off to Bolivia. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I don't remember a single second of this third act <laughs> from when I was a kid. Mm. I remember it now, but as a kid, it just there's nothing memorable about it. It's very strange. But then I like the chase sequence. I, I felt the tension and things sort of seem to really slow down here. And um, I enjoyed it more this time, obviously. I enjoy the fact that um, they have to learn Spanish to rob a bank. I thought that was a hilarious conceit. And I like watching, even though it's done in... Uh, without any dialogue, the scene where Sundance and Etta rob the bank by, with it, you know, like you can tell from what they're doing that she's going, I don't trust this bank. And he's like, come in, see the safe. Oh, yeah, yeah. And leads them downstairs. On That's what the there was no evidence that Etta um, was involved with any of their robberies when William Goldman wrote this script. So that's something that he made up. Mm. And then a few years later, they found evidence that she was involved in one of the robberies. So it's quite an enigma, though. Like nothing's known about her. Like the last sighting of her, or the last sighting of the person who was thought to be her, mm. was when a, a woman walked into uh, an office, a government office in uh, America, and uh, requested Sundancer's death certificate. And I think that was like 1904, maybe, and that was it. And so mm. you don't know. No one really knows what mm. happened to her because I think Peace wasn't her last name, her real last name, and so they can't find any. They don't know where to start looking for records for her. Mm. Well, what the film cut out was um, obviously because it would be quite boring to watch them running a ranch in Argentina mm. for uh, for about six years before they started robbing again. They had quite a, a nice life living together, apparently, the three of them running a ranch. So they did have other options. They mm. didn't have to go back to robbing. I'd have no. liked to have seen that. Actually. No, which is interesting, isn't it, when we get to that? Because they try and go straight and it doesn't work out. And you can tell that they're going to go back to robbing after um, after they try and become payroll guards in that whole sequence for the mines and this is where butch actually kills someone for the first time and he says it in the film he goes i've never killed anyone before which is true that was in reality despite being the leader of this outlaw gang the first time he ever actually killed another Mm. man was the bandits in bolivia yeah so i think their decision was going straight is the first time we've had to murder people we may as well go back to our old life because Mm. this isn't worth it what is the point which is when Etta tries to convince them there are other ways of going straight. Uh, 
campfire scene mm. and she's like this farming. And it's... But she doesn't try too hard. And then I, that was another like negative thought for me with their relationship because she is like she doesn't talk when she's teaching them Spanish to rob banks and she's robbing banks. She's on equal footing kind of with them because she's part of the gang and she's very useful and all the rest of it. But then when it comes to the crunch, it's like, right, this isn't going to work. What are we going to do? She's sort of like, well, we could try farming. And like, no. And then she's like, right, okay, bye. And I wondered if she was holding her tongue uh, because she didn't have the power that I'd sort of projected onto it. Because if she spoke too sharply or too forcefully, the men would either tell her to shut up or just ignore her. So she's like, what's the point? So I'm going to go. I think it's more it's a lost cause. I think she realises at this point that mm. they have made that decision already. They're going to go back to Robin. So her words are falling on deaf ears. She right. can she can see the writing on the hole in the wall. Nice. Oh, Lovely. Got that written down. So I tried to find out exactly how it all fitted together. And I think it's this, because I think this scene replaced an earlier scene. So the footage at the start Mm. of the train robbery, originally there was a scene here, which is Butch and Sundance in Bolivia, watching that footage. Yeah, have you you watched it? The actual footage? Yeah. Only what was at the start of the film? No, the deleted scene. Oh, is it in there? It's oh. on the it's on the it's on the DVD. I didn't see it. Yeah, so uh, they go to the cinema with Etta when cinemas were new. I mean, it's a tent uh, with a screen, and they see historical figures of that time that puts them in a kind of context for the audience. But then they see film of their sel- film of themselves on screen, and suddenly they have something to live up to because they've seen that they've become these legends, uh, and they get annoyed that what they're seeing on screen is wrong. And then they see themselves get killed in this footage. And uh, it comes up in Spanish, the inevitable. And so um, that's the moment that Etta departs on Mm. her own. And um, so while they're watching themselves die, she's leaving and heading to the train station. And so the reason he'll cut it is because he felt like it was too much of a contrivance. He didn't buy it when he was watching it. And he does commentary over it saying, I just don't buy this. But I think it's interesting just showing us that these two, these two people were the first people to experience fame in their own lifetimes in this way. And so it was kind of, it was kind of underlining that, but I thought, I think it's a really good scene. I I think he's wrong, but yeah, he thought it was clumsy. It sounds a bit abrupt, her leaving though, because I do quite like the conversation she has with Sundance and Butch where she's like, I think I'm thinking about leaving and he's like, well, it's up to you. And when they're lying by the campfire... There's at least a conversation about it. By all accounts, this scene, she just sort of watches them shouting indignantly at the screen about how they're portrayed and it's like, I've had enough and and walks out. Mm. I, I thought it came after the campfire scene, though. Well, but I right. might be wrong because it okay. doesn't actually say where it appeared. Um, but yeah. Okay. Uh, well, as it turns out, she left at the right time because things are going to go fucking awful. Um, we know what's coming now uh, because Etta's gone and she said, I won't watch you die. So they're going to die. And sure enough, uh, we're into the final shootout with the Bolivian cavalry. Um, They're still bantering uh, about going to Australia. And I told you I had a question about this. At the and uh, William Goldman talks about this being like one of the finest uh, scenes he's ever watched performed. Uh, mm. Redford and Newman in the scene is like the way they are. It's fantastic. Do they know they're going to die? <laughs> and is it like, and it's just a little bit mm. of like saving face with each other and having a, like pretending it's going to be okay? Or do they actually think they're going to make it out of this situation? I think they know they're mortally wounded. I think this yeah. is them. Okay. Do they see mm. the army outside? No, that's why I yeah. think they think they might still they might get out. make it alive. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Because they don't know the army's turned up. No. And I, I, again, like 
Hill, the director, talks about the Bolivian cavalry. He was like, it's unbelievable that this would happen, but it did actually happen. By all accounts, it didn't happen. It was a shootout with a much smaller number of soldiers and the Bolivian cavalry didn't turn up. But they go out and come back. Yes. Because they go, so, so they see there's a, they're absolutely surrounded but when the, they're driven back. Y- they see a lot of men there, but the, mm. the, the actual cavalry, the military arrive mm. while they're talking amongst themselves inside. So they don't know that there's literally now about 100 men out there. They think there was like 10 or 20 or something. Because that scene when they, they go out to, they're, they're, there's a mule that falls in that scene. And this, is, this was another uncomfortable thing in that documentary. Because in America, they were, you weren't allowed to do that stunt. But in Mexico, where they shot it, you were. Why? Uh, because it's, it was illegal to use a wire to trip a mule uh, in America. But in Mexico, those rules didn't happen. So Hill, as he's commentating over this scene, he says, there's a chance of breaking the animal's neck with this technique. But luckily, we didn't. Jeez. It's like, wow. Well, different times. The earliest scene where, on the subject of animals, uh, the earliest scene when they're with the bull... And the bull chases. Um, chases uh, I was waiting for you to bring this up. On the, so that bull that yeah. chases him when he's on the bicycle, that bull was called Bill. Yeah. Bill the bull in yeah. real life. A very, very placid animal by all accounts. And they, could, they just they couldn't get it to chase the stuntman who was playing How did they pass the bull. audition? I don't understand. I don't think they auditioned it, but they found it. They found a workaround, as you would, uh, which was to spray its testicles with hot sauce. And mm. the hot sauce burnt its testicles to the extreme that it went mad and well, chased people. Yeah, you, why no, didn't it uh, chase the person that sprayed it? <laughs> they said if you pointed in direction in a direction and then squirted this on the balls, it would then charge in the direction they pointed. I in. don't fancy that job. They can kick backwards. No, classic right. Bill. Uh. <laughs> uh, and so uh, we uh, we get the end. They talk about Australia and how they're going to go there, and it's really really sweet. And and then they die. They get shot. Well, we don't see them get shot. And as I said, as a nine-year-old, they definitely survived somehow because why wouldn't they? They're the heroes of this story. But uh, but chances are they probably died. Mm. Although in reality, uh, as you'd imagine, a lot of confusion, mysteries afoot as to whether they did die because they never took photographs of the two men. Two men were killed in a shootout with the Bolivian army. Uh, What happened was... um, it was much fewer men, but there was a shootout that erupted. It happened in the same way. They found this branding on the mule, knew it had been stolen from a mine, found these men, realised they were the men who'd robbed the miners in the jungle. And so a shootout began. And uh, there was a break in the firing at about two in the morning and they heard a man screaming. And then they heard two gunshots. And the following morning they went in and found two dead bodies. And it was two men who'd been mortally wounded and as the story goes, Sundance had been shot by Cassidy uh, through the head to kill him because he was dying. And then Butch Cassidy had turned the gun mm. on himself and killed himself. And that is how they died in reality, if it was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But as which, you'd imagine... Which would have been a different ending. <laughs> a really, really, really different ending. Yeah. I mean, I can see why they didn't do that, that yeah. ending. Yeah. I struggled with the ending as is. That would have broken yeah. me. It doesn't really chime with raindrops keep falling on my head, does it? Uh, a bit much for a nine-year-old but as yeah, well. No, I think, yeah. so to finish on. Uh, but you touched on this. Weirdly, the town where this shootout happened uh, still restages the shootout uh, to bring Cute. in tourists. <laughs> Which version? Uh, the, the movie version. <laughs> <weirdly. Okay. laughs> yeah, not the suicide-packed version. Uh, so they... Um, 
They have tried to dig up the bodies and they found no one in the cemetery where apparently they were buried that um, has the same DNA as the Cassidy uh, relatives. So some people, like Butch Cassidy's sister, do claim that he returned to the US. There's so many different stories. But your real historians go, they definitely died Hmm. down there in Bolivia. And uh, that's about it. Um, There's a remake in the works with Paul Rudd as Butch Cassidy and Tom Hardy as Sundance. And that's your lot. Is that no? Oh. <laughs> That's good, right? I was like, I thought I'd do that at the end, and then I thought, actually, if you were casting those no, two roles, Tom Hardy's not right. He's Tom Hardy. Enough. He's not funny enough. Paul Rudd yeah. is completely right. Okay, yeah. I thought Tom Hardy was better than Rudd. Funnily enough, Paul Newman didn't want to play Butch Cassidy because he said, "I'm not funny. I can't oh. be funny." And it was it was George Roy Hill who convinced him that he could. He could make it work. But it is interesting then. I was thinking about Paul Newman. He didn't do a lot of humorous roles in his career. He he knew that yeah. that wasn't his thing. I think he is, he is funny here. But mm. um, yeah, so maybe it's Tom Hardy. Uh, Tom Hardy did do that romantic comedy with Chris Pine. Oh, This Is War. Yeah, yeah. so maybe, maybe not his thing. <laughs> exactly my point. <laughs> uh, any more for any more? No. Shall we do the bits? Yeah. All right then. Uh, best scene. We'll start with you, Chris. Okay, um, I'm going to go with the ending, uh, but as much really about, uh, not as much about the final image, but I love that moment of those moments of them talking in that room um, and all the humour and hope and pathos and that faith that they have. I just think it's really beautiful acting. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's then buttoned by the freeze fame of them, that sort of end of innocence and and them staying forever young in our minds. And, you know, the opposite of the, 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 the Bonnie and Clyde ending but no less um powerful i think and no less effective i was surprised i didn't cry i really thought i was going to cry at that bit but i didn't which goes back to what you were saying about it's strange that i'd loved these characters throughout so in theory i'm the perfect person to have that gut punch of emotion at the end when they die and it didn't happen for you know why i didn't cry uh watching it this time was just thinking about can't cry in this version of the story that they've shown on screen how many um innocent people they've shot and killed in the two minutes before Exactly. Uh, and I don't know what happened in real life, but then at that point, they're killing all these, rather than give themselves up, they're killing all these people who are innocent. Uh, therefore, they deserve to die. The bastards. Mm. Yeah. B, best scene? Um, and I nearly chose the, the montage, the you know the steam passage to Bolivia, because mm. I just think it looks brilliant. Based on uh, based on real photographic evidence of the yeah. three of them in New York, they, like even it. the bit where they're in Tiffany's, like uh, there is evidence that Sundance and Etta mm. went into Tiffany's and bought like a, a pendant and a pocket watch. That was based on the Pinkertons were following them mm. round, and so they've got all these notes of where and when they yeah. went. And, and I just like to see them like having the best of everything. Like if you were going to rob everyone you might as well spend it and you don't mm. see that and like you know when they're in Bolivia and the, the big platter of food they're having I just liked all that but obviously it's the ending because just the endless quipping it, I mean it's it's annoying at points but I quite like that so that's it all right the ending Anna I like the polite robbery that we spoke mm. of I like the fact Etta's got some agency in that scene exciting and they're all dolled up but it's also very funny and I think the bank robbers actually the bank teller is very funny his yes. reaction the way he's just going here you go <laughs> ladies and gentlemen yeah. do come and have a look at this mother he thinks he's in for a winner you know lovely new client and then oh the gun comes out and it's just sort of that look of dejected sort of acceptance on his face I think says so much about you know how common it was then he was like oh here we go another bank robbery so yeah I like that and the fact that he passes them the padlock back through the bar so they yeah. can actually lock him in that's great <laughs> 
It's great. Uh, mine is uh, Butch's introduction, uh, the fight with Logan, and for especially uh, Sundancer's uh, shit-eating grin when he waves <laughs> at him. <laughs> just that moment, I just I was giggling to myself. I thought it was great. Okay, Victoria, MVW, most valuable whatever. So I think so. The I think the actors. So it, I mean, it have to be Paul Newman or Robert Redford because uh, Catherine Ross isn't given enough to do. So and then I think Paul Newman and Robert Redford are fairly evenly matched. So. Paul Newman is going to edge it for me as the character of Butch Cassidy because I think the character of Butch Cassidy is slightly more interesting in this film because of the fight with Logan, like the the way that he fights dirty and um, also that he apparently has never shot anyone, which I cannot believe. But And then when it comes as it does, and I see Thelma and Louise does this a bit, it seems like sim- more symbolic than real um, by that point. But fine, if it was true, he never shot anyone. And also the this love triangle thing with Etta, like not taking what he seems to want, which during the time that this is set and shot, actually, that would have been hard for an audience to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so and the endless annoying quipping, which I quite like. I like that as well. I know you do. MVW Anna. I'm going to go for the animals. I was going to highlight Bill, but you've already told that story. <laughs> um, but the horses also do a fantastic job. And you couldn't make this film without them, could you? No. So they do That's a great a job. good shout. Yeah. It is. It is. And it is a shame that they used a wire to trip a mule. I didn't know that. And yeah. the hot sauce on Bill's balls. I know you didn't bring that up because I thought it was horrible. Yeah. But you've got to, we've got to tell the truth. Can, That's what we do. You couldn't do that anymore. Chris, MVW? Um, I think this film looks beautiful. And director of photography, Conrad Hall, really captures the colour and beauty of the old West. And interestingly, I'd already picked him for watching one of the documentaries, but Paul Newman says he remembers George Roy Hill saying a few weeks in, I'll stage it and you shoot it, as he knew what he was getting was gold. So Conrad Hall directed as much of this as, as Hill did mm. on set. It is a beautiful looking film. Yeah. Really beautiful. Um, well, I mean, I couldn't pick bef- between Redford and Newman, so uh, I think I'm going to give it to a, a, a man. And I'm trying, I'm trying to separate this film from reading his book, and I really struggle to separate just this script from that book because that book talks about this film, and it also talks so much about screenwriting. But I feel like I understood like structure of like screenwriting, and like fell in love with dialogue from watching this movie and reading his book. So they kind of mesh together, but it's William Goldman. Um, and if I'm sure you've read um, Adventures in the tra- Screenwriting Trade. It's just, if you, you've read it, V, it's... I mean, I just, I'm not very good with my theory. I'm just good at the writing. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's, just like, it's just a gift. It's something you can't teach. No, you can teach it. You absolutely can teach it. But what's good about that book as well is it's got lots of good gossip in it as well. Mm. Yeah. I did read it at college, but I've never read it since. And I don't refer back to it. Well, he's my MVW anyway. Fine. So <laughs> suck it up. Uh, finally, change. What would you change about this movie? Anna, would you like to go first? <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> A lot of things. I mean, of course, I would change the representation of the women. But I'm going to say for fun... I would amp up that threesome action and let's see mm. them all actually in bed together, consummating mm. it. Let's do it. Hell yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll jump in now because this isn't mine, but I thought as a nod to Thursday's films, it would have been nice if Sundance and Butch kissed just before they ran out. Just a little kiss. Yes. Just a little kiss. Um, but mine is, well, Robert Redford thought it was crazy and killed the movie, uh, but audiences loved it. Raindrops keep falling on my head. I agree with Robert Redford and I disagree with the audience. I hate it. I, that song drives me mad. <laughs> I think the movie grinds to a halt when it happens. It's one of the most famous scenes. It was a huge hit. People love it. I don't like the scene. Um, I don't like the song. And 
it was someone else who was good at riding bikes. Not that it was in the film because at the time they thought um, uh, uh, Butch was a, a, a bike riding trickster, and it turns out it was another cowboy. They found out afterwards, so it's incorrect. Just get rid. Sorry, I know it's romantic, no. and I know people love it. But... I really hated that song as well. I, yeah, I remember it, but I hate. I liked it. it when I was a kid, and now I can't bear it. Mm. Sorry, B. So Etta, she's she's a school teacher ostensibly in this film, which is a respectable business back in the day, right? Mm. But she goes and she abandons her job mm. without telling anyone, which wouldn't be the done thing to do. And she goes on the run. Now, she doesn't make it onto the wanted posters, even though she's robbing banks. So she can, in theory, slip back into her life with a bit of finagling about where she's been. So I would have liked to have seen what happened to her just for a moment when she gets back home, basically. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, mine's really simple. It's the bit where they're being chased by the police in Bolivia and they reach a junction in the road, the police do, and they ask a little farmhand, they're like, which way have they gone? And he points them down a road and they ride past um, Butch, uh, the trio, hiding in some ruins. And I'm just like, the whole thing is like they've recaptured what they had back in the States. So I think it would have been good if they recreated the sweet face moment from earlier where they'd actually paid that guy to send the guys the wrong way and they appeared behind him and gave him a thumbs up or gave him some money yeah. and rode off in the opposite direction because then you get a nice repeat of sweet face. Set up and pay off, Alex. Yeah, exactly. Better than Goldman. I'm getting rid of it. I, Robert Redford can be my MVW. I've just realised. Not Goldman. Not after that. <laughs> uh, right then. Uh, <laughs> I think that's done. And uh, just so we don't have any awkwardness in the studio, Chris has dropped the quiz this week. <laughs> not from me. It's from you. He doesn't want to see you get that competitive in front of a guest. Uh, but we can tell you about something because you are doing uh, the London Podcast Festival as well as us. Anna, tell us about your night. Yeah, so we're going to do it on the 9th of September. We've got Ita O'Brien, who's the intimacy coordinator, coming on to talk about her work and some other surprise guests. So Ooh. it should be really fun. Um, I did London Podcast Festival a couple of years ago. Great audience. So hope to see people there. And I look forward to seeing your one as well. Great stuff. Yeah, it's our first one. Um, and we ummed and and discussed what movies we were going to do. Mm. And in the end, we decided to run a poll yeah. on our Twitter account. We, we wanted to go highbrow, didn't we? Oh, we yeah. were thinking, yeah. let's take this seriously. Mm. We want to do two films that we can really get deep with. It was like, it was going to be Butch and Sundance, but we'd already uh, committed to doing that with mm. Thelma and Louise this week. Mm. And we uh, went through the Oscar winners. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so um, I'll, ju I'll just read through the movies that were on the poll and then Chris can announce uh, who the winner is because uh, we put it up on Twitter. If you don't follow us on Twitter, I do bang on about following us on Twitter a lot. So if you've missed out on voting, I'm sorry. And if you come into the live show and you're like, I'm coming to see what? It's your own fault. Follow us on Twitter at ClashPod. You had four options. Wild Wild West versus Lost in Space. Masters of the Universe versus Michael Bay's Transformers. Super Mario Brothers versus Sonic the Hedgehog. And Howard the Duck versus 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Hundreds of votes were counted and it was bloody close mm. but Chris we have a winner what two films are going head to head at the London Podcast Festival we're going to spend a lot of that night talking about interspecies sex because Correct. we are doing Howard the Duck and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles you're welcome London <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it I love it I'm very excited you can get tickets on the website or follow us on Twitter where all the details are at Clash Pod right then a uh, quick clue for next week's choices uh, before we come back on Thursday to talk about Thelma and Louise. It's my choices next week. Here is your clue. What a helmet. No wonder the movie tanked. That's your clue. What a helmet. No wonder the movie tanked. That's my clue. 
effort the movies were doing next week. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday. Uh, Anna, you're coming back, aren't you, to talk to Emma Louise? I cannot wait. Excellent stuff. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate, and indeed review us if you have the time. It's a great help. And check in with us on Twitter and Instagram at ClashPod. Back on Thursday. Bye-bye. This was a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 